0: So I was talking to my friend the other day. Um, my friend lives in Alston, Brighton. And so therefore, to get to work, he has to take the number 66 bus, which I like to call the Alston limo. Because it is the only bus that goes from Dudley up to Harvard Square. And uh, as he's waiting for the bus, he's waiting um, for about five minutes or so, and it starts to rain. And you may have been outside during one of these rainstorms these past couple of days. Um, but it starts to pour. It's not playing around. It's a real rain. And so he's out there for five minutes. It's raining. He's out there for 10 minutes, keeps pouring. 15 minutes, the rain goes on. 20 minutes, 25 minutes. For 30 minutes, he waits for this bus, and the rain is pouring down upon him. And by the time the bus arrives, he's so soaked from head to toe that when he walks, you can hear that little squishy sound when your your shoes are soaked. And so he walks on the bus, and he goes to work, soaked throughout the whole day. And we're talking. And I'm asking him, well, what, what was going on? What was this? And, and as I'm hearing, um, I'm realizing that on the one hand, this is a story about a man getting soaking wet waiting for the bus. On the other hand, it's actually a story about something much, much deeper. Um, you see, my friend had moved out to Boston after college for grad school, like many of us. And after a few short months in grad school, he decided that grad school in this particular program wasn't the thing for him. And so now he's in Boston, kind of in limbo, if you will. He's waiting. He's not quite sure what's going on. And the rain keeps pouring. He goes from job to job. He's really not quite sure what he's doing here. He's had to move two or three times. And so on the one hand, this is a story about a man waiting for a bus. On the other hand, it's a story about a man who's, who's seeking. He's searching. He's waiting in life. And I asked him, well, what, what were you feeling as we talked about both this small story of the bus and this broader story of his life, I said, what, what are you thinking? And he goes, well, the one thing I feel is I feel separated. He said, I feel separated from myself. He said at one point he knew what he was about. He knew why he was here. He knew what his purpose was, if you will, but that's gone. And because of that separation from himself, from himself, he feels separated also from the community. He just knows there's something in him. He knows this is not the way it's supposed to be. He's not at peace. There's something that's not quite there. And so tonight what we're going to explore is we're going to explore peace. What does resurrection peace look like? Um, What we've been doing ever since Easter, now we're in a liturgical season called Eastertide or the season of Easter. And the question that we've been posing through this sermon series um, called Living in Light of the Resurrection is, okay, the resurrection happened, now what? And Mark offered two weeks ago as we began to focus on hope for two weeks, the first thing he said that resurrection has conquered death. And so therefore, no matter what trial, no matter what suffering, no matter what pain we go through, there is hope. There is hope because we know the outcome. So that was the, that was the first week. The second week, what Mark proclaimed is that there is hope in mission. And so we turned our eyes to look at um, what mission means in light of hope. And as Mark boldly encouraged us to imagine that if we are sure of this hope, if we know what this hope is, then there is nothing that we should be afraid of. And that we should turn our eyes wholeheartedly to Jesus and be seeking after Him. Because we know that in Him is the ultimate hope. And so again, now that leads us to today when we're talking about peace. And then next week Mark's going to talk about what does a peace-filled mission look like? And so there are um, a few things I want to do in outlining what peace is. But before I get to what peace is, why don't we talk about what peace isn't? So I like to call these facades of peace. Um, the first one I like to call the church smile. You may guess where I'm going with this. This is a phenomenon that doesn't only happen in church. It happens outside of church as well, but I think we often see it. Um, let me paint a picture for you. So say you're at home. You're with your wife and your kids. And you realize you should have left for church ten minutes ago. So you rush the kids you get them in the car and your son starts crying because you realize your son is in curious george land now what that means is that your son will go anywhere you take him as long as he has george with him and george is not with him so he starts to cry you run back out you grab george you get back in the car okay now you should have left 15 minutes ago as you get in the car your wife says oh honey i forgot my bible you reply Honey, we're Anglican. We don't bring our Bibles to church. <laughs> she won't listen to you, of course, even though you, you persist. That is a misnomer, by the way. I do encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. <laughs> but you run back in. You grab your wife's Bible. You come back out. you Start the car. You get to church. Now, maybe you're having a light discussion with your wife on the way to church. But something magical happens. As soon as you hit the threshold of the church, your smile comes on. Everything's great. Everything's wonderful. There's a peace about you. Now, again, this doesn't always happen in church, and I don't want you to be suspicious and think every smile tonight is like that by no means, but this is a false sense, a facade of peace, if you will. The other thing that I like to uh, talk about when I'm talking about facades of peace is what I call, if I ignore it, it will just go away. I'm guilty of this as much as we all are. This happens often with the little things, the check engine light, or maybe the uh, change your oil light. You think, all right, 10 more miles, then I'll change the oil. Or maybe, man, I just got to wait till Saturday. It's a busy week. I'll wait till Saturday. Saturday comes and goes. All right, well, 10 more miles. All right, 10 more miles. You just keep thinking. Maybe you put some tape over, your, over the sign on your car. But you just think, if I just ignore it, it will go away. Now, we do this with these light things. But we also do, these, do this with much deeper things. Maybe there's that relationship, um, a family member, a co-worker, a friend. And you got into a fight years ago. Maybe this person said something that really hurt you. And and you've forgiven them in the way that you've pushed it away. You've said, I forgive them. But really, whenever you take a moment in the midst of busyness, in the midst of going from one thing to the next, when you're quiet, that's on your mind. And you realize, I didn't forgive them. And you keep thinking, well, okay, oh, I just won't think about it. I'll busy myself with the next task. I'll do the next thing. Maybe if I don't think about it, if I ignore it, It will go away this happens with unforgiveness we do this with things in our life that aren't the way they're supposed to be with wrongdoings maybe we do something repeatedly over and over again and we just busy ourselves so we don't have to deal with it maybe this is stress maybe this is finances There are lots of things in our lives that we think well if I just ignore it it will go away so again the two facades of peace are the church smile if I just ignore it it will go away this isn't really peace we trick ourselves into thinking that this is what peace is. But let me offer you um, what I think peace is, particularly to this passage. Uh, What I think is happening here is that when Paul talks about peace, he's, he's obviously a Jew, and he obviously knows Hebrew, and he studied the scriptures. And so I think in the back of his mind is the Hebrew word shalom. Now, if you don't know anything about Hebrew, you know the word shalom. It's just a standard word. When I was in Israel, I spent a summer there. Um, every Saturday, you have these cute little Orthodox kids with their prayer shawls and the tzitzits, which are the strings, hanging over, and they got their, their yarmulks on, and say, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. And that's just what you say. You say, it's basically peace to you on the Sabbath. And so, again, we hear sh- shalom all over the place. But what does it really mean? I think um, a simple translation, peace, doesn't quite do it. Now, of course, we're always weary of if something means everything, does it really mean anything at all. So I'm going to offer you uh, a pretty, um, I guess, far-reaching definition. But again, hang with me. I'm not saying shalom is everything in the world. So here are some attributes of shalom. Includes wholeness, physical well-being, prosperity, security, good relations with others, integrity, righteousness, justice, and salvation. I think um, a phrase to sum up the word peace, to sum up the word shalom, to sum up the word used here, is it's the way things ought to be. Or maybe it's you're moving in the way things ought to be. So maybe another synonym for peace in this, in this uh, passage is reconciliation. So when I say peace, when I say re- reconciliation, think of those three things, peace, reconciliation, and the way things, things ought to be. This is why in the two facades of peace I mentioned, the church smile. There's something disingenuous about that. You're pretending that things are the way they ought to be. That's why it's a facade. Or maybe if I just ignore it, it'll go away. You're hoping that if you don't engage in this issue, whatever it may be, your own wrongdoing, your pain, your hurt, it'll go away. And again, it's a facade. You're tricking yourself to think you're, you're in peace, you're reconciled. Things are the way they ought to be, but they aren't. And again, this is why my friend, who I talked about at the beginning, the one who was waiting for the bus, who just got wetter and wetter and wetter, he was searching for peace. He was wanting things to be the way they ought to be. The life he envisioned when he moved out to Boston. And so he wasn't at peace. He wasn't reconciled with himself. He wasn't in the way things ought to be. And as we turn to our passage here in Ephesians, um, we, we begin with saying in verse 12, that Paul kind of highlights the way things weren't for the readers of Ephesians. He says that, remember, this is at a time before they knew Jesus. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And you had no hope, the resurrection hope Mark talked about. You didn't have any of that. And you didn't even know. And so there was a yearning. There was some sort of yearning for the way things ought to be. But it wasn't there. But then Paul makes a dramatic twist in verse 13 he says but now but now in christ jesus you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of jesus and i think at church of the cross um, one thing that we've always wanted to be is we've always wanted to be a community that allows you to explore god that's something that we wanted to be since we began almost two years ago in a living room in jamaica plain we wanted this to be a place where people could explore god you had the freedom to explore God in your own terms, ask the questions, wrestle with the deep things that's happening in your life, these deep questions about God, purpose, all these things. But at the same time, I want you to know that this isn't all that Jesus is asking from you. So if you're here tonight and you're exploring God, have that freedom, but at the same time, I want you to know that Jesus' desire for you is reconciliation. His end goal, his desire for you, isn't exploration. And so what I mean by reconciliation is that I think I often use this analogy is whenever I'm in a relationship, whenever I'm close with other people, whether it's living with them, whether it's a close friend, or whether it's the woman I'm engaged to, I quickly realize my own inadequacies. I quickly realize all the, all the ways in which I've done wrong, and I see all the married men nodding their heads. Um, And it's it's this moment, it's this idea of knowing that, man, I shouldn't have said that. I knew I shouldn't have said that, but I said that anyway. And what is that? And it's the way things aren't. it's It's finding that the way things are are supposed to be aren't. And so Jesus has come. He came into this earth in the midst of all of our mess, and he went to the cross to die as a substitute for those things, for those things that aren't the way they're supposed to be. And so we've given him our wrongdoing, we've given him our pain, we've given him our suffering, and he's died for them. And his desire is for you to be reconciled to him. So if you're here tonight and you're just exploring, please explore, take that freedom. But at the same time, please know that Jesus' goal is to be reconciled with you. And so we have this reconciliation, again, this passage about peace, the way things ought to be, reconciliation. And on the one hand, it's very clear about reconciliation with God. Again, but now in, in Christ Jesus you were far off and brought near to the blood of Christ, and later on he says that he came so he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he has come to reconcile us to him. But this passage is also very powerful in that it talks about another kind of reconciliation. It talks about a reconciliation with others. Um Now, I just want to dig a little bit into the first century context and explore what was happening here. There's a clear hostility between Jew and Gentile that's happening at the turn of the century, turn of the first century. Um, And it's on both sides. The Gentiles saw these Jews as this small community. If you think about the whole Roman Empire, they have this small community. They dress funny. They pray to a funny God. There's only one. There's not more than one. And they eat funny things, or they won't eat certain things. And so they kind of ostracize them. And on the other hand, I need need to grab the remote here. On the other hand, the Jews have their own beef with the Gentiles. And this is a quote from um, around 100 B.C. And let me read it to you. This is a quote uh, by a, a Jewish man who's writing about the Gentiles. He says, Now our lawgiver, being Moses, being a wise man, and specifically endowed by God to understand all things, took a comprehensive view of each particular detail and fenced us around with impregnable ramparts and walls of iron that we might not mingle at all with any of the other nations but remain pure in body and soul free from all vain imaginations worshiping the one almighty God above the whole creation. So there's a very clear movement by the Jews to say, we're going to separate from you and in fact our law is the thing that's protecting us you're bad you're like a virus and we want to protect ourselves from you so there is not just ambivalence there's a hostility here and this is actually made even more clear in the design of the temple so um, in the first century they designed the temple as kind of the idea is that the temple mimics the way the world is so that it shows how the world ought to be if you will to go with what we've been saying today And so here's a picture. This is a replication of what the temple might have looked like um, on the temple. The temple is on the top there. And there's a very clear barrier. see everything on the outside. That's called the court of the Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile, if you weren't Jewish by blood, you had to stay on the outside. Then the next gate in was the court of women. And after that was the court of the sons of Israel for the men. Sorry, ladies. And then one further was the, the court of priests. So there's a clear separation. They're saying that this is how the world is. There's Jew here. There's woman here. There's sons of Israel here, the men. And this is, goes so far as to a couple um, centuries, at least one century after uh, Jesus came and died, there's um, a prayer that the, that the Jewish people prayed. They would say, Lord, I thank you so much for, t- for many things, about 20 different things. One of the things they would thank them they thank god for is that one they weren't a gentile they weren't a heathen they would also thank god that they weren't made a woman so those are the two things and so there is a direct sorry again ladies first century was a rough time so there are very clear two things that that show this it's this prayer it's that letter and it's the temple and they're showing that there's a hostility Between them, and let me read you an inscription. This is the inscription in Latin and Greek, so that all may read. And this is what was written uh, between the the. Let me go back here. Between the court of the Gentiles and the court of women, and it says, um, "Let me find it here." Oh, it says, "No man of another race is to enter within the fence, enclosure, and enclosure around the temple." So very clear and if you remember in the book of acts there's a story where paul comes and he gets arrested at the end of acts and the reason he gets arrested is because he brings an ephesian man in with him into the court into the court that's only for israeli men so that's one of the reasons why he's in prison taken off to jail and eventually executed is that he broke that law and so there's this hostility still in this mind so we can even see maybe paul is thinking about doing this thing with this Ephesian man, taking him into this forbidden court when he's writing this letter. So he has something in mind here. But let's note what it says. This is the verse that's on the front of your bulletins as well. So I'm going to start in 14. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So again, this was a visceral, a real thing. This dividing wall of hostility It wasn't some phrase wasn't some idiom. It was this wall that was set up in the temple. That was the example of it. And he goes on in 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So they this wall is the law, and this law has been abolished. Now, not in the sense that all commandments are now null and void, but in the sense that the law as a means of, To salvation no longer exists for now Jesus is the means to salvation so what we have is a radical this is radical in the first century is this bringing together of two ethnic groups who are at odds with each other into one new body into the church so again we're seeing reconciliation between man and God and we're seeing reconciliation within these ethnic and racial groups now I know this is a little bit of a dangerous territory here whenever we talk about racial reconciliation in the church But what I like to do is actually use an illustration. So that might be helpful for some of you. And I I just wanna say by preface that I know the first century world was a world of hostility. There's Jew and Gentile and they were hostile with each other. And in our world today in America, in Boston, it's a diverse city. Um, It's a city where there are people who are not so much, they're not so much in hostility with each other, but more they're just separated. Their lives go in two separate ways and they don't really intersect. in in ways that are genuine or in ways that are very close. Now there's always exceptions. I'm making generalizations here, but I want you to hear this with grace um, as I say this. So what what I like to talk about is the kind of separation of the churches in Boston. And I want to focus especially on the immigrant, I want to say recent immigrant, and then maybe a longer term immigrant. My family uh, came over, my grandfather came over from Poland. So I don't know, I'm an immigrant somehow, but not really. And so there's, I wanna say that recent immigrant and kind of the more established um, people here. So there's this, there's this divide. We don't often hang out with people who are recent immigrants unless our job somehow pushes us in that place. So again, I want to do an illustration just to show what uh, a life might be like for a recent immigrant, because I think that it's not so much that, again, it's not hostility. It's more that there's not a sense of understanding or awareness. So I'm actually gonna need two volunteers who would have thought when you came to church today? Natasha. One more. Maybe a gentleman. Let's go, guys. Step it up. Sam, Sam. Sam thank you. This is courtesy of uh, Micah Stroop. So, the task before you two is to build a house. Okay? So you may you may begin. Feel free to get on your knees. Um, so what happens? Feel free to to look around so you can see. Um, when people immigrate over from another country and they come over to the states, they're not coming without a foundation. They obviously knew their own language, they knew their own culture, they knew the idiosyncrasies, they knew the jokes, they knew these parts of their own culture. So they had a solid foundation that they built upon. Many of them had degrees, they worked hard, they had social standing, they had respect. Um, And so what often happens is that when they immigrate over to America, there's a shock, right? Now you can't pick the pieces up, you have to keep going with whatever's left on the table. So there's a shock that happens. Because here you are, you have everything set, you move to America and everything is different. The culture is different, the language is different, your social standing is different. Oh, that's cute. And, and so there's a shock. And it, it's, statistics show that it takes someone 7 to 10 years until they can fully immigrate. And again, there's time after time where more shocks happen. And so you're left with fewer and fewer blocks as you're trying to build. Okay. Thank you guys very much. You're <laughs> fine. No, I'll take care of it. You guys can sit down. And But the, the odd thing, if you will, so you think this would wreak havoc on a church. You're thinking of you a church, maybe um, a Korean church that's an immigrant church, or uh, a Hispanic church that's an immigrant church, or maybe a Nigerian church, whatever it may be. You think this might wreak havoc on their church because all this is a shock after shock after shock. But we've actually found in Boston is that the church, churches that are seeing revival, churches that are growing radically, are these immigrant churches. And so I believe that a way that we can take this passage of reconciliation between people groups onto our level is how can we, as a church that's not full, we have a few immigrants and that's true, but maybe a church that's not made up of mostly immigrants, how can we learn from the immigrant church? How can we listen to what they're doing? How can we posture ourselves in a place of listening and learning? Because they are experiencing something that, as the church in Boston, you always hear these stories about how secular, how evil, how the church is in decline in Boston. Well, that's true for a certain segment of the church, but for another segment of the church, it's radically growing. And how can we listen to that church? And so I just want to share a story that has impacted me. When I first moved to Boston, I started attending an all-black church, um, Bethel AME, down in Jamaica Plain. And I became friends with the pastor, um, named Ray Hammond, who grew up in Philly and moved out here and planted this church. And I want to say that I often uh, felt clumsy, I guess is to say it, often felt out of place as being one of like five white people in the church. And I didn't get a lot of the jokes, I didn't get what was all happening. But what I can say is that I was able to sit um, in close relationship under a black man and I was able to learn from him. And that has deeply affected the way I perceive and think about church, the way I think about um, life in Boston. And so again, I want to challenge us as a church how to work out this reconciliation with others is through imagining what would it look like for us to partner with an immigrant church? What would it look like for us to learn from the immigrant church? So again, I want to say that this passage is about two things. This passage is first about reconciliation to God. And so I want to challenge you. Maybe there's something... When I said it's not the way it ought to be, maybe there's this church smile. Maybe there's this idea that if if I just ignore it, it'll go away. Maybe there's something in your life that, as soon as I said that, you're like, oh yeah, he's talking about this, or oh he, I think he meant this, but I really know the deeper issue is this. And I want to challenge you that when you have a chance, possibly during the prayers of the people before you come up for a communion during a time of silence, that you be willing to engage. It's a step of courage, sometimes we push something so high, we ignore it for so long, that this wall builds. You might know exactly what that is. I encourage you today to reconcile with God about that. On the other hand, the other implication of reconciliation is this passage, is um, within ethnicity. And so there are just three things I want to encourage you to do. I know you're all very busy with finals, but these are goals, I would say, for the month of May. The first thing I encourage you to do is that we have the wonderful joy of celebrating at 4:30, which often means we can sleep in but i want to challenge you to visit one church that is different from you in the month of may whether it's a hispanic church an african-american church um, an asian church whatever it may be maybe even an immigrant church to visit one church during the morning and see what you can listen to see what you can learn from posture yourself in that place of learning and listening the second thing that i want to encourage you to is think about who are you having over for dinner we often uh we'll be nice we'll be friends we'll hang out with people but kind of the dinner i feel like is the baseline for knowing who our friends are so i want to encourage you to invite someone who's not of the same race or ethnicity of you over for dinner and i want you to um, do this with love not with a you know hesitancy or an awkwardness saying oh man i got to say the right things what did ben say to talk about okay i said those all right now it's good but just naturally just enjoying conversation enjoying your time with them And the third thing that I want, and so again, try and do this in the month of May. The third thing is that if you ever have the opportunity to be mentored, to be discipled by a person who's of a different ethnicity than you, I would take that as soon as you can. There are so many things that we can learn from from people who've gone before us, from people who've experienced this kind of shock, the strength and the courage that that builds in a church's life and an individual's life. It's something to be admired. And I want us to be able to place where we can say we want to humble ourselves to listen and to learn. So this passage is about reconciliation. This passage is about the way things are supposed to be. So let us as a church be always pursuing peace, be always pursuing reconciliation, and be seeking, be a witness in the city as to the way the world ought to be. Amen.